like what is food security? It's basically that people have access to food or all the time and high quality food. It has these broad components which include access, quality, quantity. And when you think about access, it also integrates things like if there's food at Whole Foods, but I can't buy it because it's so expensive, I don't have access to it. My guest today is Catherine Nakalembe. She's an associate research professor at the University of Maryland, and she's the program lead of NASA Harvest, a program of NASA that's related to food security here, namely in Africa. I've been wanting to talk to Catherine for a little while now to hear her experience working with farmers and people on the ground in her home country of Uganda with regards to access and distribution of foods. And also how remote sensing can help in a topic like this. We do hear a lot about how satellite imagery does enable farmers in Western countries, but I wanted to hear a perspective from someone from a different environment and applied to somewhere else where the constraints might be different. Catherine is actually in the US right now and is working from the US. So I also wanted to explore how she manages to continue to help people in Uganda from the United States. A quick word of the sponsor of this episode, they helped me grow the show, so a big thanks to them. This episode is sponsored by Element84. They're a geospatial software engineering company that's focused around large-scale impact projects. And one of the examples of what they've done is putting the Sentinel-2 optical imagery onto AWS to make it a lot easier to access. I've had Dan Pallon, their CEO, on the podcast where he talked about how him and his wife co-founded the company and how they're thinking about it. It's on episode 16 and all of that will be in the show notes. With all of that said, here's my conversation with Catherine Nakalembe. Hi, Catherine. I'm pretty excited to, to talk to you. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I like starting these conversations with the same question every single time. I like asking people how they would describe themselves. So I'm quite curious, how would you describe yourself? Um, well, right now, I guess I describe myself as a uh, professionally, sometimes personally, but professionally, I'm a associate research professor at the University of Maryland and uh, I spend a lot of time doing research uh, as well as uh, working with people from all over the world which is pretty exciting um, and I get the opportunity to talk and meet people from all sorts of uh, backgrounds and, uh, and fields and uh, I guess my life is pretty exciting and uh, and busy, uh, but from a personal perspective, I describe myself, and I always say this, that I'm a, a Nalongo, which is uh, a Luganda word for mother of twins. So I have twin boys, and I tend to describe myself as, I guess, like a very hectic, uh, very hectic, high-intensity uh life with no break so I complain a lot about uh, I'm tired and I'm tired uh, a lot of the time so <laughs> I don't know if that's a good way to describe a person but that's my reality I guess no I think that's uh, that like I, I, I do like asking that question because a lot of people answer it in, in very many ways and I always find it quite interesting uh, to, to understand what angle people go for um, so I'd be curious like why why hectic? 
Um, you know, a weekend is not a weekend anymore, so I don't get to sleep in and, and recover um, before Monday again. And so it's, you know, you know, running from one Zoom call to a meeting to a conference and then in between, or, or the other, you can flip it the other way around, it's between getting ready for getting out of bed, making breakfast uh, for, for my sons, keeping them busy, keeping them engaged, trying to do some education or something, keep them off of uh, uh, Netflix, YouTube and all of these applications that have been created, which are great but not great at the same time. Um, I, when I sometimes have like a space to breathe or when I'm overwhelmed completely, when I can't think properly, I end up doing something that's a bit much more uh, energy consuming or intensive, like gardening or baking, like impromptu types type stuff. Um, so for example, I spent this past weekend, it wasn't a weekend actually, I think it might've been like Friday afternoon last week. Um trying to resurface my entire garden and remake it. And so uh, it, I feel really tired from doing that, even though that's a really good relief for my, you know, for my, for my mental space. Uh, but then I have to go back and do calls, do emails, uh, prepare for work trips and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a, a not very well balanced. It's like um, very little uh, downtime. Yeah. Have you have you kind of always been like that, or do you think like something that's kind of caught up, creeped up on you, you know, over time with work and things like that? I'm not sure. People that know me well, they say that I uh, I'm a a big procrastinator, not a very positive thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so right when something is so important and so and you know like why like when a deadline is approaching, is when I can just pick up something completely new or pick up something that I, that was behind that has is not related to the thing that is most important in that moment. And so, and this, I've noticed this becomes more and more intense, uh, as I, over time, I think. Um, I also tend to sometimes, um, reduce it a little bit for some things, but I tend to, try and perfect things. So I spend like a lot of time, you know, fixing tables and, 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 and citations and, and stuff like that by, so sometimes I do like when working on papers or, 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 or proposals, you know, we use like Google Docs where like everybody can enter text, but like a few minutes or, you know, a few hours before the deadline, I, you know, I, I convince myself that it's not looking good enough and I want to move it into late. And so doing that is like something you really should not do the day something is due. It's something you should do before. But I tend to, to think about how the previous one looked so good. So I really have to do this and then like, you know, go until the very, uh, very last possible minute to do something at the same time, trying to do all these other things in addition. So it's like, uh, some type of intensity. Um, and I also feel like I, there's a lot more motivation to do something, um, when it's due, uh, there's a, otherwise you can kind of like just put it off again next week or next time or whenever you have time. You yeah. sound like a procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> Totally not. That's not true. I don't know where you got that from, but <laughs> I, I I do feel like um, like deadlines and, and creating deadlines is, is something quite helpful about 
just something like this podcast, for example, like finding a rhythm has been a, a like creating that, you know, probably nobody cares if it comes out a day later or something. But for me, it's this thing about like, oh, this date's coming up. I need to, to, to put it out. And that's how things start start coming out. So, no, I, I totally get you. <laughs> I want to get uh, we're going to get into your your work a little bit more, but uh, I'd like to start off uh maybe like a little bit earlier in your in your career in your journey i think i read from an an article from the bbc that originally you wanted to be a badminton player and i wanted to go a little bit into that and kind of what younger catherine was like and and how you went from you know wanting to do badminton to where you are now so I played badminton from probably when I was 11. Uh, before that, we played a little bit of tennis. So I, I played badminton a lot. It's part of like my, it defines my, our family. So my big sister did the same. Uh, we did really well. And so when I finished my undergrad, it's funny. I feel like I'm like a, a broken record when I say this, but like when I finished my undergrad, um, I, I hope that I would do sports science for my undergraduate degree because I was really interested in physical education. I played uh, badminton, basketball, volleyball. Um, I was a, a games prefect, that's how we call it in high school. Uh, I taught my, it's like a, it's like an, an elected student to lead like a specific, um, I don't know what they call it in, in other places, but it's like, uh, you know, like a head girl, a head boy who sort of like representatives from the student body to the teacher body. But we had like different, um, you know, representatives for sports and games and stuff like that for music. And so I, um, I was for sports and I liked, I was like, and, and I realized it, recognized it now more too, actually, because of my sons. So we got them into soccer and I get, I'm so excited when I see them, you know, playing and navigating challenges that you face in everyday life. So I kind of like try to see these different life lessons that I probably learned because I played sports, uh, that apply in every single dimension of life. So for example, when you're playing on a team, um, you know, passing the ball is like something they have to learn. Or sometimes you're not the most critical player. Sometimes uh, a goal gets scored without you touching the ball even once. You know, like those types of things. I see them like struggle and fight. And I think I learned those lessons too uh, through sports. So that's that was me. I taught myself how to uh, teach aerobics by watching videos. And this is way before YouTube, you know, like at least as far as I remember, I'd never been on YouTube when I was doing this and like me making up my own dance moves for my aerobics classes. And so I thought that this is really what I was going to do. It was, uh, you know, it was draining. It, it was it was hard work. Uh, it required a lot of thinking and creativity um, and I thought that I um, I would do really well at it. Oh, that it it was really exciting. And so, how my path ended up kind of shifting is when I finished high school, the program that I had applied to for sports science, I didn't qualify for what would be like a government scholarship. So the 
the bar was really high in, in the sense that the combination of the subjects that I'd done, um, but then, because they weight them differently depending on what you're applying for. Um, and so, so I could still have done it, but I would have had to pay like full tuition. So I would have had to have done it as a sort of like a privately funded program, which was definitely not an option in our, in our family at the time. And so, you know, while, so the in-between period, there's always like new programs that get advertised. And so the, there was a program on environmental science that was just brand new. So it wasn't kind of, we didn't apply. So you apply the year before um, you are meant to start. So you would, let's say, apply, you'd submit a, you'd submit a form, let's say, in October the previous year to know what program you would do in September of the next year. Um, but then the newer programs get kind of advertised in July of the year that it is supposed to begin. I'm just making these, these figures up just to kind of, uh, kind of bring the idea home, yeah. And so I, I found out about these ones, so not that many people knew about it. Um, and they had a very different criteria, which was more aligned with the, the subjects that I had done. So my subjects, the subjects I did really well and had a higher weight, and so I got into into that program, um, and I started, you know, environmental science. Um. So did you get in because, like, just because of the grades, or were you, like, interested in it, or? When a lot fewer people apply, there were a okay. lot of places. <laughs> I think maybe everybody got accepted. I'm just making this up. It might not be true at okay. all, since I don't know all the, all the facts around this. But... Um, so, as I mentioned before, like the weighting of the subjects is different depending on what you apply for. For example, if you apply for medicine, uh, biology, chemistry, physics would be, you know, would have a higher weight compared to if you, if you did, let's say, art as an additional subject. Uh, but if you applied to, uh, an undergraduate degree in art, your art would be would be weighted higher than biology or chemistry, right? And so when you apply, depending on how you perform on these, so you could find that somebody did really, really well on biology, chemistry, and physics, but their number one application, they were applying for art, which they didn't do so well in, then they wouldn't qualify for the art program. But because they didn't apply for medicine, which they qualify for, they wouldn't be considered like that kind of stuff. Maybe. This is me making it up. <laughs> but this is how, how I kind of explained it to myself. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get into that program and then what happens after? So I get into the program and, uh, you know, go, you know, into like a basic environmental science. So, um, and... We had, you know, introduction to everything from soil science to forestry and, and stuff like that. But then we also had um, a GIS and remote sensing as an introductory course. There's an introductory course to, uh, I think, computer science. I'm, I'm not going to say computer science is computer science. You'd think about it. It's just like, I don't know, computing or computers, something like that. That's how I think I remember it because it was so easy for me. <laughs> and then I had, uh, I was taking, I started, there was a program that was offered as a, like a certificate program that you have to pay for. 
that was like an introduction to IT, IT essentials. It was like co-funded between the, uh, I think the Department of Gender and um, HP, you know, the people that make uh, uh, printers. Yeah, 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 yeah. HP. And so I would do that in the evening while I was doing my environmental science and uh, during the day. And uh, when I finished, I wanted to do, you know, one of the biggest things was like field work. So we, we went out and, you know, would go and measure trees, identify tree species and stuff like that, which was always so exciting for me. Um, but also when I finished, you ha we had the opportunity to do like a, a research project. Uh, so you just you determine how you do your research project. In mine, I wanted to use uh, GIS sort of to create a map uh, on something. Um, and uh, I ended up doing uh, sort of mapping in uh, Mount Elgon. So I did field work with the uh, Uganda Wildlife Authority ranges, and I knew this is the thing that I think I wanted to do more of, like more mapping. Um, and the field work is, is something that really got it. And the field work, yes. That this is something that has not only influenced me as a person this is something that drives me as a person it is something that gives meaning to the work so you know reflecting on like that field work that I did if I had the same knowledge that I do now what we what we did was um, there's a lot of encroachment to and into the national park there and with the ranges we would go up and map um, like locations where where villages are located and you could walk you know hike up this mountain for I don't know three, four hours, and then you went into a village, you know. Um, so there uh, people were pretty high up there. And what might be interesting is, oh, you know, with the, the knowledge and more awareness that I have is, you know, people were looking at, like, conservation and, like, what are the, the models for making sure those communities, you know, could live sustainably with the forest. Because actually the ones that we met deep in the forest were... were you know, primarily doing that at the time, but with increased pressure, uh, there'll be more crops being grown up uh, deep in the forest, and you know the consequences of that are, are pretty big. So maybe I would have done something like that actually for my master's and PhD, uh, looking deeper into this human um, human nature uh, 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 boundary, and and um, but I didn't, and so. When I finished my undergrad, I ended up, um, my big sister was living in New York at the time, and I applied to uh, master's programs in the U.S., and I got into the Johns Hopkins University, and the program was Geography and Environment Engineering. So it was um, geography and environment engineering, but from more uh, an engineering perspective. So we're looking at, like, water resources management, waste management. Um, but there's also some really interesting things like uh, like foundational, you know, foundation math for decision-making and, uh, you know, being introduced to our programming and, and stuff like that. Looking at, uh, I started looking more deeply at climate change. Then um, we had this, interesting course where we're working as a group on like uh, climate change policy and that was really interesting too <laughs> but what it uh, what I didn't get through that program was the opportunity to kind of like maybe have like another research deeper research that involves some kind of like field component it was a it's an accelerated master's and so 
um, when I was looking for master's programs, I was looking for some PhD programs. I was looking for something that would, um, one, allow me to work back home in Uganda. I, I wrote this down in my personal statement, actually. Um, and also, uh, you know, require a lot of like, uh, remote sensing and GIS work, which I didn't get to do a lot of in my masters. And so the PhD program at Maryland was a perfect fit, um, for that. But all of these things, you know, from my undergrad, doing my field work, doing my masters, all of them kind of converge, you know, during my PhD except for one added dimension, which is now I started looking into agriculture. Uh, so I didn't really look deeply into agriculture or food security until I started my PhD. And so you mentioned that like wanting to work back in Uganda was like a, a big motivation. Did, did I understand correctly that um, you it's when you went for your master's that you left Uganda to go to the U.S. and then you wanted to come back to be able to work uh, over there. So what I, my thinking, and if, you know, what I wrote down in my statement was sort of my reflection as a person as to what I wanted to do. When I applied to my master's, I wrote the same thing that I wanted to gain skills and knowledge uh, that I could apply back to a problem in Uganda. So if you visit, you know, if you go to, 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 to Uganda, for example, there's lots of things that could be quantified, that could be measured. There's There are lots of issues and uh, there are lots of opportunities to grow and lots of things that could be changed. And so I knew that there is something I could contribute to, but I wasn't, you know, I hadn't kind of put my finger on it. And if you think about the work on looking at mapping in the mountains, so I was curious, like, how does the Ministry of Environment do this? How does regulating this uh, boundary with the wildlife authority works? And I went back to that same place a couple of, um, before the pandemic in 2019, I went back there and the boundary has shifted so much that part of the enforce, enforcing this, uh, they kind of set up like this actual visible boundary pillars around where the park begins and where the community uh, ends. But like you can see this transition, uh, more and more croplands going higher and higher into the into the forest. And maybe that boundary is not the solution because like, you know, some of the things that I think about is like, how do we center humans as part of this solution? Because they have to be uh, part of, they're the community that lives there. So they have to be, they have to be a part of the solution. They have to kind of reflect on the value of the forest and maintaining it and keeping it intact um, while also they're able to feed their families. And so those are sorts of the things that I guess I could have done if I if I'd um, you know followed that question. But to your question, um, being able to contribute something, and I think I also thought about like influencing or impacting one person's life in a positive way, you know, where I think that, so when I was applying for my master's, I went to uh, the U.S. Embassy in Kampala, and there is a an education advisor there, 
um, who, you know, I spoke to and she gave me all this guidance, you know, and just what she did for me really changed my life uh, in that sense. Like she took the time. She's the one who, you know, who was like, maybe you should apply to this school. She's the one who pointed out that I could apply to Hopkins. She wrote me a letter of recommendation. This is beyond, you know, what her job is, I think. You know, her job could be like, and there are the books and here are the videos uh, and you can apply. But maybe, you know, maybe she was just doing her job in this sense. But like, I felt like, um, I, I felt that she did such a great uh, thing for me that I was confident or comfortable enough to ask her to write me a letter of recommendation. Um, and so that would not have been possible. And so like, it's like thinking about with all this education and knowledge that I could gain, can I also do something like that? Um, you know, that's kind of like centered to um i guess who i am actually could have said that in the beginning yeah so so let's get a little bit into your work uh around food security and and, and agriculture can you um like explain just at a heart at a high level like what even is food security because i don't think it's even a concept that um i certainly wasn't familiar with um for better or for worse so can we start there like what is food security and then we can go into your work a little bit more yeah um i mean i guess a, a good segue would be how did i end up in food security sure. uh because yeah. that was not on my radar as food security is food security and like you know as yourself um you know, I grew up in Kampala, uh, and my family's not wealthy or anything like that, but we never, you know, necessarily, we never went hungry ever. Um, maybe we'd have to choose between, I don't know, some high protein expensive thing, like high protein was not an option every day or every week, but it wouldn't be that it would be completely stopped, right? So, even me growing up, like food and being hungry was not like part of my everyday, the everyday thought um, in, in that sense. I mean, it would have been nice, of course, to have like chicken more often than we did, which was like once a year, <laughs> like like that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe I thought that as a child, but um, when I started my PhD, I met my PhD advisor at a faculty meet and greet and, um, you know, he pointedly asked me this question, uh, tell me about yourself. So I think he'd, you know, already, of course, read my personal statement, he knew who I was in general, but, you know, he just like came out, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know this, this until a while later. And so I told him who I was and what I, I just finished my master's and I'm excited to do this and this. Um, and he was like, why don't you come and see me in my office? So I set up a meeting, went and talked with him. Um, at the time, he he is actually co-chair uh, of the GeoGlam initiative, which is the Group 1 Earth Observations Global Culture Monitoring Initiative. And at the time, he was co-chairing it with uh, a person from the office of the prime minister. His name is Johnson, um, from Uganda. And so when I met with him that day in the office, he was like, so I don't remember if he said so many things before he said, how would I like to go do field work in Uganda? <laughs> like maybe that's the, the most the most important thing about this whole conversation because it was absolutely unbelievable because I didn't know when I would go back to Uganda. Um, but because he's a uh, chair of uh Geoglam at the time, you know, they were trying, it's this, this international 
collaborative initiative where if you're working on agriculture uh, with remote sensing, earth observations data, um, trying to figure out ways that it could be more useful to you know broader communities, how it could become more open and more uh, more engaging and more more useful, but in kind of like a, not a very you know overly superficial way, but like carving out like real tangible paths to for people to use these tools and data sets in in uh, in, in all sorts of contexts as well as uh, curating and working through, um, you know, what's out there, is it good? Uh, is it, you know, what what does good even mean? And what is what is relevant, what is needed? So when you think about what's relevant, what's needed? So at the time, you know, we had Landsat uh, data, but they, you know, have very poor coverage in, in certain places. There are not enough images, there are huge data gaps, there's, all these things to do with cloud. And, you know, when we think about the time then, it's a long time ago, like where we, we are right now, you know, we're drowning in a lot of data, um, a lot of teams, a lot of groups are working on producing really high quality things. And so this is what, you know, that initiative is, is, is all about. A way of sharing and knowing what people are doing. And so when I met with him, First of all, that the fact that he'd been co-chair with uh, uh, Johnson. Johnson worked in the food security department in the office of the prime minister. And he was like, he basically introduced me to the office of the prime minister in Uganda. I'd never, like, you know, I didn't, I'd never worked with any government organization in Uganda prior to this. And so this basically led me, led me down the path of food security. So when I went and met with Johnson, um, we went and did, he took me to Karamoja for the first time, uh, which is in the northeast of the country. And there, food security is number one on top of everybody's thought, like in the sense that, so at the time, you know, they were resolving a lot of, the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, conflict, uh, conflict in the sense that there's a lot of, um, what do they call them? They call them warriors. What it really means is they're um, sort of nomadic pastoralists who um, have sort of been marginalized, but there's also a direct conflict with more um, agrarian part, the more agrarian part of the like the region. So there is uh, the pastoralists or the warriors would come and attack villages from time to time and, you know, graze their crops and stuff like that. But it was also this very transitional situation where uh, there was a lot of government support towards people becoming more sedentary, so growing more crops and, you know, pushing them away from being pastoralists. It's one of the most complex places, you know, in, in terms of human human environmental interactions as well as policy uh, it has a it has a, a lot of uh, uh, land use has been largely influenced by uh, policies outside of the regions uh, there's you know there's a huge colonial backdrop to all of it so it's like this very it was a very messy place and it, I mean this messy in the sense that it's like there's a lot to understand and so when I went there it was like going to a completely different world uh, in many ways, but it was something that I was keen on trying to learn, like what is the useful thing that I could learn. Uh, and because of that huge investment in transitioning towards more agrarian uh, 
communities. Uh, there's a huge uh, expansion program that was offering like mechanized opening up of land for crops. And so this was very so something very obvious that you see in satellite data. Uh, and that's like, I was like, I'm going to understand how land use has changed in this region and how, if that has had impact on food security of the region. And so there are all these assessments that are done year to year about food insecurity, looking at what they call this interphase class, uh, interphase food security, um, what is it called? IPC interface classification for food security so basically ranking um, whether things are really bad or really good i have not answered your question now i realize like what is food security it's basically that people have access to food all, all the time and high quality food so it's uh it has these broad components which include access uh quality quantity and when you think about access, it also think you know it, it, it integrates things like if there's food at Whole Foods, but I can't buy it because it's so expensive, I don't have access to it. Um, right. Yeah. So like they have to be able to afford it. Affordability is one of those things. Um, just one of the a, a good example that could demonstrate food insecurity is the place that I studied for my PhD. So. Uganda as a country is not food insecure because it's, it's one of the, uh, in broader region, it's like one of the countries that performs really well in terms of our cultural productivity. But this one area, um, which faces more extreme, uh, climate, climatic conditions. So very dry of, of floods all the time, crops fail often, um, is one that is food insecure. And so, one way that you would try to resolve this would be to improve accessibility, which is bring food, you know, just like there are deserts in the U.S. that are not actually food deserts, right? So you would make the food available in Karamoja through, you know, it could be just improving transportation routes and stuff like that. But to add to the mix of the level of insecurity is that the food in the region that's brought to the market is so expensive uh, that even though it is there, it's just prohibitive. Like local people can't actually buy it, uh, and don't they don't have um, the money to buy it. So that's you know that's part of being food insecure. So it seems like remote sensing would be like a small part of that much bigger puzzle of trying to figure out the whole situation and evaluating all the different options that that, that you have. In terms of uh, food security, some of the things, oh, in, in terms of food security, so in order to understand access, you have to understand agricultural production. So agricultural production is where like remote sensing has a huge contribution. So from very basic things like what crops are growing where, this will give you an indication of production. Um, so we could do, we could generate like crop type maps for example, from those crop type maps. The other thing satellite data allows us to do is looking at conditions. So now we know there is like sweet potato in this region. How is that sweet potato performing compared to, you know, other 
what well, one other areas, but as well as in time. So if we know that, uh, and now I'm talking about, you know, purely about like vegetation condition or crop condition, we're comparing now to last year or the year before. So we know this is what the average condition is for a good yield. If it's below that, it might not be. The other is we're looking at rainfall, temperature, all of these data sets exist. So we can forecast, we can look at now, we can forecast what the outcome might be. And um, the other is, I mean, there are so many things that you can look at if you're thinking about accessibility in terms of infrastructure. Too much rainfall is not good. Uh, too little rainfall is not good for production. Too much rainfall could easily cut off an entire region so people can't be accessed. So you can kind of you know, make those, uh, you can think about those things. Going towards yield forecasting and, and modeling, like if we can understand what production, what average production is in a region, we can kind of like predict what it will be for a specific season. And then from that, you can then model all of these other things like accessibility. Uh, and it's really interesting. And there's not a lot of work going in this other particular space, but like, Looking at the quality of food, you know, uh, there is definitely opportunities there to look at. It's not purely about, um, I mean, it's not purely about there being more. In the end, it's about more of what and for what. So we could be looking at, um, let's say, soybean in Brazil or corn in Brazil, but it's being produced for uh, either fuel or to be exported for feed. And so that doesn't actually solve the food security situation for the local community. It's just basically uh, being exported. It's not being used for local consumption. And so if all the vegetation is doing great, but it's just corn for export, that is not addressing food security. So there's like all these other dimensions that a basic product like crop type would be relevant for, um, for example. And then, of course, there's looking at like uh, um, agricultural practices, mixed cropping, uh, looking at cover cropping that could help improve like policies around protecting soils. Ultimately, uh, eating now should not compromise eating in the future. So if we wipe out the soils in the process of feeding people now, that's not a very sustainable uh, food security scenario going forward. One of the things I'm really curious is trying to understand, like, who benefits from that work? Like, the way I'm understanding that is you you try to map and understand the current situation you have right now, maybe taking in weather forecasts to, to propagate in time, like, what's going to happen in the next few weeks, next few months, and then plan, like, oh, there's going to be a food shortage in this area. Maybe we should bring things in like that. So I could imagine that being at a, at a more higher, maybe governmental level. Um, is, is there also a, a case where that kind of work helps the people on the ground directly? Because that's probably a very different impact and maybe a very different work as well. Absolutely, you you asked this question in a a, a, a really good way. I I, I um, it kind of it's like one of those things that I I emphasize a lot when I talk about um, like the work that we do. There is definitely clear potential, clear utility, very well demonstrated application at 
at a higher level. So higher level, if you think about it, even from a spatial scale, at the regional level, we have a good understanding. Once you start digging down and being like field scale, um, it becomes really complicated. Like telling a farmer what is happening exactly in their plot, um, you know, requires a whole other dimension. And, and in this case, um, we're even talking about smallholder agriculture. So now we're not talking about like giant fields in the middle of the, of the U.S., right? Which like a farmer in the U.S. could easily, you know, have, uh, clear indications across all the different data sets about what's happening in their field. So they could have a, an earth engine app that tells them what's happening in their particular plot. It doesn't work that way for a smallholder because like their farm, entire farm could be one pixel. Okay. Or two pixels. Um, and then plotting the data, the accuracy of it. If you think about like rainfall and temperature, um, with all the, the gaps in training data that are required to improve like rainfall models, you know, it could just be forecasting my local conditions based off of a tower that is, let's say, 300 kilometers southwest of where I am. And I know this for sure. For example, when I was working in Karamoja, the closest weather station that had a consistent record of more than maybe three years consistent with some gaps or 10 years with some gaps was 200 kilometers southwest in a completely different geographical setup. It had, it's in the mountains. Uh, you know, it's like this other region is in the rain shadow of that mountain where that, uh, that weather station is. So it's completely misleading to use it. And so going back to the point, you know, about uh, at a decision level, uh, a good example from my own work from my PhD is these broad, uh, these broad indicators of what's happening in like this region, Karamoja could be, you know, provide like early warning and, can help like trigger like early response mechanisms. So like, uh, it is very clear as of now, let's say we're in June, this is supposed to be the middle of the season there. And for example, I can check right now, uh, for Karamoja and see what the anomaly is, like what the vegetation conditions are and say for sure, this is not going to recover because based on our historical record, whenever things hit this level, they never got better. Um, and so we predicting, that for 80, 20, 90, 40% of the region, there will be, you know, complete crop failure. And this is the level of response that's needed. For the farmer, however, I think I probably already went to this point is that you could package that information in, 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 in different ways. And it could be, you know, through the medium that they use. So if they listen to radio programs, um, one interesting thing that, that could be discovered, for example, a research organization has developed uh, maybe a more drought tolerant type of seed, right? It's been demonstrated that it works really, really well. Um, you could communicate that through the radio and be like, when you go to the market, you should buy this. It's much more suited for your area. But it could be used the same way to provide early warning and be like, uh, based on, uh, the results we're looking at based on data that we're looking at right now, this, uh, dry spell that you're experiencing has impacted other farmers, you know, all the way from A to B. Um, it's unlikely that, um, you know, without a good rain in the next few days, your crops will fail. So don't waste your energy, uh, working on that field. Like that's like one way, uh, that, you know, you could reach like the, 
remote, remote uh, farmer. Um, but, you know, the delivery medium of this information has to exist. Yeah. And the other, of course, from a policy perspective, um, it ends up impacting the individual. So um, if a decision is made that a specific area is severely impacted by a drought or by, let's say, uh, a pest, a decision could be made that we will provide, um, you know, maybe pesticide. It will be uh, put at these distribution points targeting areas that are more severely impacted. Uh, it could, you could also use this information and data for planning going forward. If there's like drought after drought after drought, ultimately the decision could be like maybe you could create alternative opportunities for people in this area that, you know, they would not need to go. You know, you have evidence, had evidence that all oh, the money you're investing in providing seeds is basically completely wasted. You could divert that and do something else. So there's definitely always something to do with, with little and a lot. You can start measuring like the impact of certain decisions, I'm guessing, yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask, though, is how, what is the reception to that kind of, like the early warning, uh, for example? I feel like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like you can tell people, you know, don't work on this uh, field because it's gonna, there's a drought coming or something and it's, it's, it's wasted time like you were mentioning um, I don't know if I were a farmer and someone told me that if it's something that I'd be like, what do you know? Like, it's my field. Has there been something like that where the, the, the reception of that or, or like getting it to into the hands of people and, and people actually using that or, or seeing the value? Has that been also a challenge beyond just the, you know, data science and, and remote sensing aspect of it? Back to bringing it to the, the humans and, and the people there that you were talking about earlier? So I wouldn't say that I know a single farmer who has been like, oh, that makes sense, I won't do it. Because I'll, actually what I what you end up learning is that the farmers know what's happening in their field. And they have all sorts of ways for figuring out, you know, sometimes just trying to salvage their field. And so a lot of the time, also the failure happens really early. So, you know, it's like three, two months in of a three month season or a month into a three month season. And I know that it's not going to work out. So by the time, you know, we all show up or whoever shows up with this fancy information, it's always typically really like really late. But, um, the people who ultimately are meant to help for a lot of those people, it comes as, as a surprise because they're not farmers. They don't live in those, those areas. And this is where remote sensing is really powerful. So to really know for sure what's happening in a specific region, um, you know, to some, we have some level of like, um, level of confidence, you know, to the level of extremeness of an event or how people have been impacted. It's become a lot easy now, you know, we get photographs and stuff like that through social media, through things like WhatsApp, and you know, you know, you have like hard ground evidence. But a lot of people, when they're so far removed from a situation, it's very difficult for them, you know, to really empathize and help uh, and really do things that would help people. And I think that's like, 
something that this is, is contributing to. And if, you know, decision makers do better, ultimately, I think farmers will be, would also be more responsive. And maybe if they do better, actually, um, the information would, would, would arrive earlier, like way early, you know, way, way before the farmer can visually tell that my field is dead. Like that forecast would come a lot earlier, you know, when we give, um, like the, there's an outlook, a climate outlook forum in East Africa that gives a forecast before the beginning of the season and they update it as the season, you know, continues. But that forecast, you know, is delivered through, uh, like, uh, you know, through the region, then to the countries. And so what the countries do next with that is where it would matter. Uh, like that it could end up trickling down to whatever region might be experiencing a certain extreme or might experience a certain extreme. And so, that information has to be backed with some sort of, uh, I feel like sometimes farmers is so disempowered that even with clear evidence of a failed field, they would still try to salvage it and still try to, to do something. And so without an alternative solution, you know, you just, you know, it's like telling me, um, it's like telling me, you know, what might be good for you is driving an electric car. And like I like and not give me money to buy it, you know. <laughs> you get what I mean, yeah. That's a very good point to be like it, it. It's not super useful if you just tell people like this is gonna happen, but like if they have no other choice, like it, it it's like informative, but it's not useful. Like it doesn't lead to to something happening behind. So, how do you go beyond that? How do you move from you know this thing is going to happen to allowing people to to do something about it to you know telling you you need to buy an electric car how do i get you to actually get one that's where the policy comes in right uh right. that's where the like having this and i'm not a policymaker and i'm not a lawyer or anything like that but maybe i would aspire to do that because i feel like they're for for people who are completely disempowered it's like the money's not going to fall from the tree, you know. Their their peers are in the same situations as as they are, and so trying to create like an enabling environment or have some uh, um, inventions in in that space. I'm trying to think about like you know where like the private sector could come and play a role to create like alternatives and stuff like that, but. Um, you know, using the electric car as an example, unless governments put in place uh, policies that make these types of technologies more affordable, because they understand the dem demographic that they're trying to reach, you know, not everybody can buy a $100,000 car, for example, if you're thinking about like the, you know, the, the, the US, for example. But if you think about like um, food security, you know, something to bring back down to earth, because <laughs> I think electric cars might be up there in space. Uh, but if a solution, for example, is, you know, an irrigation system, that irrigation system that could support multiple people has to come from, uh, from a very comfortable backing in the sense that it would have to be 
uh, you know, you need engineers, you need a whole uh, a whole lot of money, you need to make sure that it's contextually relevant for that region, you need to make sure that, well, it, water might have to come from so far away, um, but also that, uh, you know, there have been many of those that have started and failed, like, you know, there's like all of these things that you have to, like, to work through and then maybe deliver that, or just being, you know, just admitting that the irrigation system is not the solution and rather because it, if it's going to cost i don't know 500 billion to build a system that would you know see this family to see this community out of the current predicament uh, for five years maybe you'd rather spend the 500 billion uh, i don't know setting up something different that will maybe support the community for another 30 years that maybe they will not need your help um from five years from now, you know, so like there's also, you know, there's this balance between short fixes, you know, putting band-aids rather than solving. Yeah. So it's like, it's just too complicated. It's basically what what I'm saying. <laughs> but it feels like the, the remote sensing aspect is the, is, is the conversation starter. It's, it's what allows, at least from what I understand from you is here's the situation. Here's what's probably going to happen with the with the weather forecasts and then starts the question of like what can we do about it but the 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 remote sensing yeah i i understand it as that like it, it opens the door to like now we actually know what might happen compared to before you don't even know if anything's going to happen you can't even start a, an irrigation project or or something else a good add-on to this you, you're is able like to, the sorry go ahead I think it's you can't you can't improve what you can't measure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's like what it's allowing us to do in many, 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 many areas. Like have the same eyes, basically ones that are not because human beings have different perceptions, right? But if I can clearly show you this is a drought without you know, and you see a drought with your eyes the same way I see it. Uh, you know, through numbers and, 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 and images. You know, sometimes people can be looking at the same exact picture. Like I have pictures from, uh, from Kenya, uh, uh, from this past season with, um, the African army worm basically eating up maize. I might see this and see this is a complete disaster. And someone else will be like, oh, but there's hope. <laughs> and so, but if we're looking at it as pixels, we see them there, you know, if you think about it like a, a, a chloropleth map, it's red or it's brown. It's not like, oh, it's of like reddish brownish, you know, even reddish brownish has a definition, you know, borderline things will be bad, uh, for example, if, you know, that's what it's meant to mean. And so this is, you know, it allows us to see this. The other thing it allows us to see, going back to the measure, you can't, you can't improve what you can't measure. We can see progression, we can see change, and then we can measure whether that change was positive or negative. So agriculture expansion. So there's been, I think, recently a statistic that came out about how a lot of uh, land has been converted to agriculture um, in Africa, but with very little increase in production, you know. And so the question is, why? Uh, and are those numbers actual numbers, and what are they based on? You know, so those are sort of the sorts of things you can start to look into, um, which you were, and it's not possible to do physically on the ground anywhere. 
yeah in a way that 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 data is a little bit more um i i don't want to use the word objective because i feel like that might not be but uh, we it, we introduce our own biases once we once we start touching it <laughs> yeah that's the thing so but it's a little bit uh like emotionless i would i would try to say or because which is a double-edged sword because if if you see one picture of of one area, it's very easy to 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 want to solve it there, and and to 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 care about the people in that area. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because again, that's that's what you see, and so you want to care about that. And I think sometimes it feels like removing ourselves a little bit from that and and seeing it again just as a pixel maybe helps take that decision at at a at a higher level. But then the the, the the counterpoint from that is i think we're really bad at connecting with the people on the ground because they're just pixels so it's it's probably this really hard thing to balance as well and i i wanted to get back to that for for like the field work aspect like um a, a lot of like remote sensing is getting um democratized or whatever word we want to use where more and more people have like can access it you can just you know on a laptop play around with it um but getting to the field is, is still really complicated um do, do you think it, it creates like how do you think about that where more and more people can um work and, and and get insight from from satellite imagery but not necessarily going to the field and, and actually seeing it firsthand um i think um you know it might be a, a strong statement so I'll be careful what I say, but I think, you know, just like policies or decisions that are made that are so far removed that they don't help anybody, um, you know, this is being um, scaled at unprecedented levels. You know, sometimes it's not about, not sometimes, all the time, it's not about the map or the product. So like sometimes I kind of, I was thinking about like, what is it that matters the most uh, about like the work that that I do or the work that we do? And I think sometimes it's exactly the same product, the same approach, the same method that was used to analyze the data. But the most important part becomes the context and the understanding of the context and the understanding of the use. So there's the, the you know this word doing like use inspired work. So counting how many buildings they are, just for counting them, or um, looking at land cover change. Sometimes, you know, you could just do it purely for that, you know, quantifying it the best possible way, and that's, that's fine. Um, but for me, I think trying to make it meaningful and useful, the other is getting it into the right hands. Um, so some, you know, we can blame policymakers or we can, but if we can't communicate our results and present them in a way that is useful for a policymaker to, you know, make sense of it or take something out of it. So like one good one I thought about from, from our previous discussion is if we can measure how poorly our programs are doing, you know, if our target was to improve agricultural production and show 10 years from now that this whole area is flourishing, if we can show for sure that we have invested, I don't know, a, a bazillion, whatever, and it still looks exactly the same or it's slightly better, mm -hmm. or maybe a lot worse, um, you know, that makes you question, like, 
oh, but like, why, why is this the case? Like, so money is not the solution. In this case, the right, data right. product is not the solution. So kind of like reflecting on, on ways that you can work with things. And for me, um, you know, I, I don't work for a government. I won't tell, I would just share what is, what is capable and what, what is, what is, what, what is possible and what can be done. And I can help think about like, well, this is the, the program you're interested in. This is where data can help, but maybe you don't want to do that. Or maybe you want to do it. Oh, it's like really exciting and interesting. But for me, what I find is most impactful is like, individuals who become more and more comfortable working with the data and the tools that we develop, who are in actually positions that directly intersect or interact with a farmer and or with a decision maker. So, uh, for example, having like, I don't know, an extension agent in the middle of nowhere being able to go on and look at conditions in a larger area without 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 me being physically there and like if they're an extension agent they'll talk to their community and be like well what we're experiencing is happening a lot in a lot bigger place than uh you know it's not just affecting us so like that individual like that like that for me that impact is much better than um how nice my map is you know because in that case i did not have to generate a single map or a single product I just pointed them to here is this tool. It would always be available. Here's how you get uh, a simple graph from it. Here's what that graph means. You can text me if you get stuck, uh, for example. And like them going back and checking or being stuck and asking me, uh, you know, it means that I've had like some impact on them because then they're thinking about not just themselves, but they're thinking about like a, a bigger community. So that's, I think, you know, that impact, even though those are a lot fewer individuals, I think is much, much more important. How do you think we get better at that? How do you think we get, we improve, like, not not getting lost in the map? Maybe why, or is asking why, uh, why, we're, why we're making the map, um, what will it do? One of the things is, like, what could it look like in 10 years from now? When you're doing research, when you're learning methods and learning how to work with tools, I think it's totally fine to explore and... Um, but as work starts to form meaning and things start to come together, I think we have to go beyond, uh, beyond that. But then the other is to try to avoid getting lost in all the politics and all the, um, you know, larger programmatic, cause it, you know, this, this gets enhanced even more. Like you find that, uh, a team might be developing the same product, but they talk about it differently because they use a, a different data sets for different reasons, which could be where the funding is from. Um, and so I feel like those things abstract what is important, especially when uh, we are trying to work with people on the ground who do not care about any of those things. Uh, and it gets muddled and muddy. And the other thing I is having like this flexibility in terms of, you know, your thing might be really cool and you're way behind it and it's awesome. But all a person wants is like a summary Excel table. That's it. <laughs> or a simple WhatsApp message. That's it. Um, and so coming down to the level of the, 
the people that we're trying to work with, you'd be amazed how many solutions we can solve if we're trying to solve them the way we would maybe, you know, I'm thinking as a parent now, the way I would try to solve problems when I'm talking with my sons, when we're working through things with my sons. You know, I go way above and beyond to solve the problem for them, which is like we have this language in our house, which is like the language of how we communicate. Like, you know, I'm trying to explain sad and I just make a face. You know, I don't have to be like, you know what sad means? You know what it means? Like, I don't go totally crazy trying to explain something. I could just like show it. And so, uh, yeah. I, I wanted to go a little bit on a, uh, on a on a different aspect. And this might be a, a bit of a candid question, but I, I'm, I'm quite curious, like, because you work at NASA right now, if I go I work at the part, University right. of Maryland. Okay, right. So... Yeah, that's the candid part. Like, I wanted to understand, like, how all these pieces work together about um, helping people uh, in the field. Um, so we, we talked about Uganda. So so let's um, stay there. And how does that fit with being in a university uh, in, in the United States? And, like, what are the simply the incentives, for example, or how do you make those things work together? Hmm. That's a good question. So, um, so at the, at the university, there is, you know, you can develop and design your research project. Um, and then you can apply for funding for it. And so, um, I'm a principal investigator on a, on a few projects, and one of them is uh, a NASA Severe, which is a capacity building program from NASA. And um, our group runs the NASA Harvest Program, which is NASA's agriculture food security program. And so, through that program, um, you know, it's meant to advance applications and use of uh, satellite Earth observations for agriculture monitoring. And you know, we're not tied to just using NASA products. Uh, you know, it's written in the language that um, you can use other products to go towards, you know, the question that you're trying to answer. But going back to the university frame is that you can design, you know, you can write your, your research proposal and um, want to do one thing or another. And so, and research is a really great space, right? You, you can learn, it doesn't matter what you're researching, in my opinion. There's so many things you learn that apply to so many different things. Uh, and that, you know, later on, you, your primary job will be directly related to the research that you did. Oh, it might not be. Um, and so when, you know, when I started working, uh, one of the first research projects I worked on was funded by the Gates Foundation. And it was a subgrant to the University of Maryland. We were working in Tanzania. And um, it's, you know, I learned a lot from Tanzania. So everything that I did in Uganda, working with the, with the Office of the Prime Minister later on, a lot later on, was through the lessons that I learned in Tanzania. And so when we, so that project had a lot of flexibility because it was also funded by the Gates Foundation. And so spent a lot of time like understanding and working with the Ministry of Agriculture there, how they do their work and trying to think about how it would be useful. And so it's very exploratory. And so going back to the incentives part is that um, if you think about the fact that 
you know, we are a global community, global connected community. Nothing could emphasize this more than climate change. Nothing could emphasize this more than COVID, that what happens in the small pocket somewhere else impacts you and that you really want to understand everything that's happening everywhere and that you want to do, you know, ultimately, if you think about that we're doing it for all of mankind, uh, we want to solve these grand problems or grand challenges, and food security is one of them. And so looking at just food security or food, food security in the United States, which is a different, a completely different thing, and looking at it in sub-Saharan Africa, looking at the linkages between conflict and displacement, and, you know, there are these huge crises related to uh, immigration, migration. There, you know, there's all of these very complex but into into uh, intertwined things is, you know, basically where it comes from. So universities are really great space in the sense that um, I have access to resources, but that I have the opportunity and flexibility to write or design projects how I see them. And so recently I've been, uh, been working on a proposal where um, I, the way I'm thinking about it is a very collaborative kind of project working with other researchers at other universities, both in Africa and in the U.S., not only at Maryland, and trying to look at different things that I'm not an expert at all in, but that are important to the questions that we're trying to answer, and that rely completely on a partner in the country where we're proposing to do it. And so for me, this is me being like, if I really want to make sustained change or substantial change, not sustained, but substantial, I want to find more individuals who I interact with at the field who will be become like, and if you think about it as evangelism, they'll become like, they'll be like, this was really cool. I really liked doing this. How else can I do it? Uh, what else do I need to learn to do it? Um, and so, Ultimately, you know, maybe they're going to do a master's or not. If I work with a student at the University of Maryland, you know, who in the future maybe ends up working for USAID, they will be, you know, better prepared to uh, maybe work uh, in a different country or they will have a, they will approach the problem, you know, with a different lens, uh, that the, not the typical lens. Uh, and so, I think that I'm in, I'm in absolutely a very privileged position uh, being at the university, but it's one that allows me to have access to resources to pursue these highly technical. I mean, if you think about the cost of analyzing data, you know, the free part, you know, we hear about free, but it's not free. Um, if you want to do cutting edge research, if you want to you have, there, these investments have to be in place. And um, with a university model, you can even make the argument for, I think this is a really good resource. We should get it. And we get it. It doesn't work the same as when you're trying to convince uh, a government organization in a different country, you know, for example. I'm going to say something that's not completely useful sometimes. It's not useful all the time, most of the time. But it is really useful and really interesting, like buying drones to map agriculture, for example. There's no way you can convince... I mean, there is a way, of course, if you're really good. But, like, it's not worth their time or money to invest in, let's say, a, you know, an octocopter that costs, like, $90,000, for example, just to do some mapping. And maybe something good would come out of it. Right, maybe it's not a, it's not guaranteed. You can only do that within a research uh, a research setup. 
what do you think is the uh is we were talking earlier a little bit about the the private sector for example coming in to to try to solve some of the the problems around food security what, what do you think is the um like relationship between universities and um maybe the the more the public sector and the private sector when it comes to solving some of these problems like food security or things related to climate change i've been thinking about this a lot actually um because there's definitely a big push you know at all levels to have more private sector engagement and if you think about it from a standpoint if you know think about the pandemic as an example of where you know private sector involvement and engagement was absolutely critical for solving so many issues um, that would not otherwise be solved. If you think about um, innovations that are required to, you know, make significant differences, if you think about, um, you know, the levels of investments in terms of trying to solve, it be communication, access to information, like there's a lot of like potential there and like, in a, I think in a private sector. Uh, you can you can think a lot quicker from a research from a research perspective. We can mull around the question and keep going about it. <laughs> Data is not good enough, but the private sector will be like, "This is good enough. We can go with this. Let's do it." So there is that. Um, uh, but I think one of the you know one of the risks then being becomes like perpetuating the same things that have kind of continued to marginalize communities so if the private sector's intention is to make profit ultimately they will not help the smallholder you know because there's i think that it's upside down to have a business or an idea that uh, is a full profit but is serving a smallholder farmer you know who doesn't have any profit um, and so so I think something in between where there is protection of um, you know of people who have been marginalized historically um, is is so important um, especially when you think about engaging with the private sector to build let's say build products or services on top of these things that then ultimately you know farmers will be feeding the machine that continues to keep them in that situation for example what about like situations where the i feel like now it becomes a bit of a business model problem so one of the ways maybe around that is if the government is the customer rather than the, the farmer itself. And so in a way, it's a subsidy to, towards the private sector. Um, have you seen that uh, work as well? Like maybe to take again the, the example of, you know, we were talking about private company building irrigation problems. I'm guessing that would also be paid by the, the local government rather than by the, the farmer himself or herself. Absolutely. I mean, the private sector would have the right infrastructure. They would do it at the most cost reasonable, you know, hoping they do really good work at the same time. And that like, it's still <laughs> like, you know, so the government's role would be that, okay, we'll pay for this. It has to have this lifespan. It could be, you know, maintained for so long. One of the, you know, other interesting things too is like, uh, social corporate responsibility where like companies can, you know, commit to, let's say we work in a certain region, um, and water access is a big problem. 
Uh, and, you know, this is our service, is not water access. But if the community where we have our business had better water access, we would have better customers or more customers. You know, like they could do something about that, for example. Um, let's say a region is potentially really good for growing uh, siso. You know, it's like this, uh, it's used for making rope. Uh, it grows in reasonably dry environments. And my company makes rope, for example. Um, rather than just waiting for whatever the pre-processed rope, siso, to show up, I could, you know, think of ways of, you know, making it more lucrative for the people that are supplying it. The other is if you think about things like coffee. So the private sector could, you know, intervene and be like, what if we locally process the coffee and the farmers got paid better? Uh, rather than them, you know, exporting the raw, the raw, raw coffee. Or maybe that's not the solution in, in that, in that context. Um, what about if customers could demand from their supplier that, uh, you've had this like tracing your food, like where the food came from, who grew it, uh, how much it costs, you know, there's, of course, uh, I don't know how it works, but things like blockchain that have been, you know, spoken about as being, you know, a game changer in, in, in some of these aspects. So if you find out that you pay, I was thinking about this uh, the other day with uh, with some friends where if people understood where coffee comes from and how much they think they can't live without it and see the disconnect between the two, maybe everybody would want to do something about it, you know? So it's like those types of things. In a way, I feel like it's about making the pie bigger rather than, than having the same size of pi and then just trying to shift it's not a zero-sum game to maybe use some like game theory where if we you know i don't know there's many ways to think about it like lifting uh tide lifts all boat like rising tide lifts all boats about like if if we it, yeah if we make like we can make people's lives better and still make money out of it or or like from a, if we're staying on the private sector yeah I, I, yeah yeah we, abs we absolutely can. We can give up a little bit more, but still. That's the tricky be. part. <laughs> I think that's a that's a really tricky part. But like, I don't know if you you know familiar with like degrowth. Like, there's a um, you know talking about like for sustainability of the planet, fewer people can accumulate more. Uh, fewer people can't make more waste, and you know while the majority are you know don't have anything uh, so that's a very difficult thing I mean for a lot of people I think I guess the other thing that my work the opportunities that have come through my work is looking at different communities and societies and uh, kind of forms like perspectives which is where that whole idea about coffee you know you've had a lot of people like oh I haven't had my coffee yet you know like they won't function without it and like this uh, taking it like taking it for granted that coffee would always be there uh, you know is completely upside down considering if you think of course there are people who are working in the space about making coffee more climate resilient more climate tolerant you know more extreme whatever uh, if you think about it that way do you see what I mean it's very unsustainable yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean there's a, of course there's another example chocolate you know like when you see the people who grow chocolate that People can't absolutely live without, and all the smiles on people's faces when they eat chocolate. 
you know, if you combine the smile, I always think about like if it was a documentary of like someone, a smile of somebody eating chocolate and the smile of somebody having, the face, not smile, the face of somebody eating chocolate and the face of somebody harvesting chocolate or working on a cacao field, not chocolate, but working on a cacao field. These two things are so, they're, you know, they're, they're galaxies apart. Um, <laughs> they're so far apart. So like having this, thinking about the meaning of the things that we do, the things that we like or the things that we can't do without, where they come from, what happens to the things. Like I was listening, I was watching the, so I watch things with my sons, I have to confess. But we were watching uh, this Netflix show called Storybots, and it tries to explain, you know, very complex things. So this one was particularly about recycling, like what is recycling, you know, and they go, it's really, really interesting how they, how they go about it. Um, but like the message in that particular episode was like, oh, if you don't, you know, put things in the right bin, they'll end up in this giant pile you know and like this is what the pile looks like and the pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger uh or you know like just thinking about what you choose what you eat when you eat it and where it could have come from is you know it's it's, it's kind of important that we don't take things for granted because just like the supply chain showed things like i don't know cream cheese or cheese or whatever can just like disappear and people would be like oh, i didn't have my coffee <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in trying to tell stories about things like that, about like you were talking about, like, you know, there you could have a documentary or you show people's faces and, and from the, the person enjoying chocolate and the person harvesting. Like, that's a story that you're telling about, like you're 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 telling two stories, actually, and you're putting them in parallel. And I think that that's something I think a lot about in, in our work of remote sensing and and seeing satellite images we don't see people's faces at all we we just see pixels and how do we bring those two things together uh is is something i think a lot about because i i feel like people resonate with that more than you tell them a graph of like look the this thing like line went up and this other bad thing went down and that doesn't stick with people and i i, I wonder how we as uh, people who work with that data, how can we take that and, and, and turn it into stuff that sticks in people's heads? So when I was doing my PhD, uh, I'd gone to Karamoja every year almost uh, during the summer, like the peak of the growing season, August, July, August, September, maybe if it's too late. And I always had my maps, I could generate the anomaly graphs and be, you know, I was of course analyzing the land cover change, I was looking at drought and how drought has changed in the region. As I went back every year, so I, got, I brought more and more equipment. So like my, my shoes got bigger, uh, for example, because I, you know, I was standing, understanding the terrain and everything and it could just rain out of nowhere. Um, and then I, you know, brought a bigger camera and then a, a bigger camera. And then one of the trips that was impactful, like one of those pivotal points in my life was this particular season, I had so much work to do because um, we we gotten the drones that we had in Tanzania. We brought them to Uganda. So I had like a colleague come from Tanzania. His name is Sixbird, bring the drone with him. And so he was in charge of doing the drone flights. 
and I had to collect a lot of ground truth. So we had to go to certain plots. There were like five by five kilometer boxes that we had to go to. And um, that year was an extreme dry year. Like it was like really, really bad. And because I was going to be so busy, I had a friend that I went to high school with who came and uh, used my camera. So him and his friend were recording a video of what we were doing. Not what we were doing, but like what was going on. And while we were there, they, you know, they created like a whole script about like what they're covering. And, um, and so when I came back from that field work, um, I went and showed it to the office of the prime minister. I was like, oh, and this is what, you know, we found. This is the data. And they were like, can you write this into a report? And so I converted it into a report. And um, behold, I think maybe I arrived from the field. I don't remember, like, maybe, I don't remember what day. But, like, some Thursday that week, I was in the meeting with the prime minister to explain the data. Uh, but, you know, we had the maps and everything. But you know what was most impactful? the videos, and the photographs. So I would say, do you see all of that red? All of that red, this is me looking at a, a map. All of that red looks exactly like this photograph. Uh, that's basically the explanation. And um, we did this like short clips about it. You know, this woman was explaining when she planted, it dried and planted again, and now she has her entire family, her field is completely dead. And so, it was very easy to understand what the data was showing and it applies to a much larger region, a much bigger population. And this is the situation. And um, I was told after that meeting, so not told, but like the Saturday after the Thursday, the, the government dispatched like food trucks uh, bringing food aid to the region. And I was told in a text message that, I think it was a text message or an email, this has never happened before where... Um, because it's always a, it's not only, it's like, so the, for the government, the government has to get political buy-in. So it's like a political decision. And so it's being like, there's a problem does not always equal that somebody will do anything about it. But that the evidence that was presented was, you know, undeniable that everybody was like, mm -hmm, there's a problem. We all agree we're going to do something about it. And I believe absolutely I was changed by that moment. I was so excited. I wrote a whole email explaining the whole thing as it happened. <laughs> um, you know, by going to the point about like communicating, um, you know, I could have had my, I could have done my project, my research, went back, did all my analysis and published a paper, which I have not actually published the paper about, well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but that's not uh, what had the impact. But the paper, you know, comes out so many years later, or months later. Uh, and what made the impact was like, the evidence that I have is so important. I have to share this. Like, I had to share it. And, um, and then, you know, doing all this extra work to write this report, uh, go to this meeting that was definitely not on my agenda. I stayed like an extra week. Uh, it's, you know, it completely uplifted me and that's how, you know, that's how I ended up being involved in this other project, which is like a risk financing project. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's just, it's like, it was, it was, it was just lucky. But for me, what I thought, I mean, going back to why I went with more equipment and why I brought the, um, my friend to record this 
was because there was just so much happening. And um, to me, every time I went back, it was the same. You know, it was like farmers are completely frustrated. There are all these programs happening, but people are still in you know very bad situations at the end of every season. And I didn't know that it, I, I didn't look before I went that it was going to be so bad. But when I came back, you know, I was like, I have to look at the data and like, this is what we're looking at. And this is, this, this is the situation. So I'd say it was a very lucky moment in my life. A very unfortunate, uh, situation, but like very lucky in the sense that I was able to communicate what was actually happening. And I had all, uh, and had all the media to support it. I wanted to get back to one one point you mentioned a little bit earlier about how uh, I think it, um, I forgot exactly the, the 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 role of the person, but I think someone who helped you, who guided you through your education, who who pointed you to you know you could apply here and and helped you wrote uh, letters to get there, and how that it you know had a really big impact on on you. Has that prompted you to? like want to do the same thing as well to, to to try to help other people like younger people who might be you know struggling or or just uh uh scared or overwhelmed was the word i was looking for yeah by kind of everything not really yeah yeah i mean i that's that's been uh something that i intentionally do so um you know when i talk you know, a lot of the times the people that I can help more directly are people who might be interested in, you know, doing higher education, who might be interested in doing more data analysis and stuff like that. So this is kind of very straightforward. I can help them with their papers, um, guide them on how to apply, where to apply. Um, you know, if there's a good match between our skill sets and things, like then they can like work on some of my stuff. When I have, uh, when I design projects, I always reach back to people that I've worked with. Uh, like right now I have this project called Helmets Labeling Crops. And the way I designed it completely was that all the partners that I'd met in all the countries would run their country activity. And so, you know, that it's like, you know, you can trust somebody, but there are other ways that you can show that you really trust and you believe in people. And like, that's, you know, sort of, uh, something that I do actively. I always, when I find opportunities, I share them. Um, I have this other idea that I'm kind of like actively working on and on creating like a, a network for, you know, people who are, would have been like me or are like me or interested in the sorts of things that I'm doing. Uh, you know, we just need a bit of a nudge or appoint them into resources or having like an opportunity. Cause I'm also like overwhelmed. We were talking with Hamid from Waiting Earth the other day. It's like maybe we can have like a shared calendar where we offer like office hours for mentoring, for example. Uh, for, you know, if you think about it from a research perspective, but also, you know, from, you know, from a whole other perspective, there's like a whole other individual, you know, other individuals that I, that I directly support in various ways that they're so personal to me that I kind of like, this is like something that I protect so I don't really talk about it. Um, that I've met like through my field work, majority actually I've met through my work, uh, and through field work. I saw a message on my WhatsApp. Somebody sent me a photograph of themselves so like, Hey, I hope you're still alive. I think it was like in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> and it was like, we met in Naringa in Tanzania. I was there. I think the last time I was there might have been like 
maybe 2017, maybe 2018 or something like that. Um, so they were wondering, you know, if I'd kick the can. And so they just wanted to see if I'm alive. But as, uh, you know, it means that maybe in the moment that I was there, um, something I said or something I did resonated with them and was positive enough that they would care to check on me, for example. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how I I think about it. And one of my close friends always reminds me to take care of myself so I can help more people. That's what she says. Uh, so, yeah. I want to start rounding this off. Um, and I, I, I like finishing asking people for um, books or podcast recommendations. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be about anything that we talked about. I just like asking because I think um, books and, and podcasts, first of all, they travel a lot through word of mouth. Um, and I think, yeah, they're quite telling about people. So I, I don't know if you've read or listened to something recently that you thought might be worth uh, sharing. So a, a podcast that I think is a must listen to, uh, I mean, it might, from data, from people with data background and, and everything maybe might not be so so as um, eye-opening and insightful as it has been for me, or interesting just generally, is The New Humanitarian. Um, it's, a, it's like a, it's a, a non-profit uh, news, they're, they're like journalists, and uh, they talk about, um, you know, the humanitarian sector and all its problems. Uh, it started last year. It is really good. I like it. Uh, absolutely like it. I have my podcast thing open on my computer. Sometimes when I'm working, I just like listen to podcasts. I like Discovery uh, from BBC's just like general stories coming from all sorts of places. Uh, I always listen to Africa Today. This is how I keep up with um, some of what's happening in Africa. I listen to a lot of kids' podcasts for sure. Um, another one that I think, let's see, top of my podcast, <laughs> I have little stories for tiny people, but I love, I love that <laughs> name. <laughs> I love science in action. Um, I've been on it twice. Maybe I'm biased. Um, I think there's one called the leadership journey. Um, that's also really interesting. I like it, but for books, so I have this one. I haven't read it yet. It's like, it's my to read. It's called The Divide. It's mm -hmm. by Jason Hickel. Uh, he's, um, he is on Twitter and sometimes breaks down these, um, you know, very complex power structures about growth, economics, development. Um, and I really like how he explains some of these things. So it's definitely um, one of the ones up there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll have all of that in the show notes uh, for people listening. Um, yeah, Catherine, thank you very much for uh, for spending some of your valuable time with me and uh, telling me a little bit about your journey and and everything you've done. This has been this has been wonderful. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we finally did it. Before you leave, I just wanted to say a few words. First of all, thanks a lot for taking the time to listen to this conversation. Catherine and I have been uh, going back and forth to try to make this conversation happen for nearly a year now. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I bring this up because I wanted to 
just show a little bit that there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes uh, to make this happen. And so if you enjoyed this conversation, I'd like to ask if you could consider reviewing the podcast um, on Apple Podcasts uh, or on Spotify if you're listening to the uh, audio version. There's a couple of reasons I, I asked for that. Um, first of all, it kind of flatters my ego. Who doesn't like that? But most importantly, the reason I ask is just for signaling to the outside world that there are people listening and enjoying this podcast. Um, that could be for other listeners who kind of stumble upon the podcast. They hear about it and want to know if other people are actually listening and enjoying. But the other one is when I reach out to potential guests like Catherine, for example. Um, this is something I can point towards and people do their own research and they can see that people are enjoying the, the podcast and, and see value in it. And, makes them more likely to come on and to want to come on to see that there's an audience. That's maybe a bit of an imperfect way of doing it, but it's still very valuable. So if you enjoy these conversations, I'd like to ask you to consider at least to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify and uh, leave a review for, for the podcast. You can also go to mindsbehindmaps.com. You can find a section where you can leave a review. And you, there's also a section to get in touch with me if you have any ideas for, for guests or, or how to improve the podcast. I also started a newsletter that I'm going to send sporadically sometimes whenever I have something to talk about where it's going to be behind the scenes. Uh, last time I talked about why I am wanting to do more of these conversations in person. Thanks for listening again. I uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation and that I'll see you next time. Cheers.